we had heard that somebody at Sony, we'd only released it on the Sony platform because that's all the money that we had. We didn't have enough money to release on Xbox or, <laughs> or Nintendo at the time. So we only released on the Sony platform. And we'd heard that somebody at Sony had booked a conference room and set up Guitar Hero for the entire day and people were just going in and playing the game, which was pretty fun to hear. And then we also heard that they were playing the game up at Nintendo, which again... We didn't make the game for the Nintendo platform. We only made it for Sony. So they were bringing the Sony PlayStations at Nintendo headquarters and playing Guitar Hero there. And so those early signs were like, you know, this is pretty interesting. This is Startup Island Taiwan. Everything about Taiwan and cutting-edge technology, startup unicorns, and connections to the world. Welcome to the Startup Island Taiwan podcast. My name is John from the Asian Armature YouTube channel. I'm your host, and I'm here with Kai Huang, managing partner of 886 Studios. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. Great to be here. Yeah. You have a very interesting background. First thing I heard I was introduced to your story was Guitar Hero. Can you talk to me a little bit about that and kind of your story to brought you here? Sure. I'll keep the version of the story relatively short. I always joke the long version is over scotch, the short version is over beer, uh, <laughs> but it's always entertaining. I started, I co-founded Red Octane with my brother. That was the company that eventually created Guitar Hero. Like most startups, we started off as something totally different than where we ended up. So we started Red Octane as an online video game rental service. So if you think all the way back to Netflix When they were still shipping movies, we were doing that, but with games. And that's kind of how we got into the game industry, right? I grew up playing games, loved playing games, but I never thought I would actually go into the industry. So we kind of walked into the game industry by chance, really kind of around the periphery, around the side, not really publishing games. We raised our initial funding from friends and family, closed the round in March of 2000. And then a month later, in April 2000, that was when the first internet bubble burst, right? <laughs> and we knew that it was going to be hard to raise money. I had no idea how long, you know, that winter was going to be. But we knew that we had to raise money. One of the games we were renting at the time was Dance Dance Revolution, oh. DDR. That was a really fun game. And a lot of our customers really enjoyed it. But they were asking us, hey, you rent the games, but do you sell or rent the dance pads? And for months, we were like, no, we don't do any hardware. We just rent video games online. After we figured out that we had to actually generate revenue and raise <laughs> money, that's when we decided, well, why don't we start selling these dance pads? So we found some local third-party distributors who were selling dance pads. We bought them at the time, it was $15 US, and we resold them on our website for $30. So we were renting games on our website, redoctane.com. And then on the side, we had this little tiny business that was like, you know, buy dance pads. And that's really what helped us learn about music games. And it also sort of what helped us learn about hardware. So after about six months of reselling these dance pads, we were getting a lot of feedback from our customers, you know, fans especially video game fans love to tell you what's good and what's bad, right? Either, oh, this is great, or here's some ideas, or boy, your product, you know, really sucks. You know, it's breaking, or it's broken. And so we took all these ideas and the feedback that we got, and we decided, well, rather than just buy and resell, we decided, why don't we try to make dance pads? So my brother Charles, co-founder, who had a little bit of experience with international manufacturing, 
And all of a sudden now we're into making dance pads or at least, you know, having manufacturing and selling our own branded red octane dance pads. I remember very early on, you know, one of the decisions that we made was what price should we sell our own dance pads for? So we were buying them for 15 and reselling them for 30. Konami, who's the publisher of the game or the first party, they sold their dance pads at 40. First party always gets a premium pricing. And we thought now that we went to China, found the manufacturer, our price of goods dropped to $8. So half the price. We'd resell them at 30. You know, the margin's pretty good. Literally at the last minute, we thought, well, we think we have a better product. And in the world of retail, there's a few things. One is sometimes pricing can signal quality. High price makes people think, okay, maybe there's high quality, right? And we thought we had a better product. The second thing was in retail, you can take the price down, but it's very difficult to take the price up. So we said, okay, well, we think it's better than everybody else's. Why don't we go out at, let's sell it at 50 and see what happens. If it doesn't work, then we can drop the price, right? So now we're buying our dance pads direct from the you know factory at $8 or making our own and reselling at 50 online. So our margins were pretty good, really good, actually. In fact, we didn't know how good they were <laughs> until we got into the video game publishing business later. But I think our margins on hardware are actually more than actual software, wow. which is pretty incredible. So now we're making these dance pads. We did some grassroots marketing. We got some traction. We did some more marketing. And we've got this nice sort of small business going in selling Red Octane dance pads. So the next major product that we introduced was the Ignition dance pad, which we decided to go higher end. So we thought about, you know, we have this premium product at $50. Well, we could have gone low end and try to kick out all our competitors and resell a $30 product and take over the market by basically beating all of them at that lower price point. But we decided to what I call innovate up, which was sort of another place we got lucky over the course of our startup, Red Octane. So we introduced a product called the Red Octane Ignition Dance Pad. That was our second major product. And when I say innovate up, you know, it was really fancy pad. Materials were way better. It's a lot thicker. And we initially retailed that product at $130. And our cost of goods was 15 Oh, wow. So we really shot for kind of a high-end market, right? Our assumption was that gamers have a lot of money. They're willing to spend it, but they want to spend it on quality products. They don't want to spend money on cheap products. So the Red Octane Ignition Dance Pad became our sort of next major product. That became the best-selling dance pad in the U.S. Eventually, when we got ourselves into brick-and-mortar retail, so Best Buy, Walmart, GameStop, all the brick-and-mortar retail stores. Took us a year of knocking on their doors, but we finally got in and were able to sell into brick-and-mortar retail. So coming off of holiday in 2004, you know, we had a good sort of sales year with our dance pads, which were very high margin. And we decided, hey, we need to expand our business. We didn't do software at the time. So we went to a lot of the Japanese video game publishers, Konami, Sega, Namco. They were the ones who created music games in Japan, but they kept them all in Japan. Dance Dance Revolution was one of the few games that they brought to the U.S. These are like arcades or kind of like actual video game for consoles? And Console games and arcade games. For us, we focus on the console space. So we went to them and said, hey, why don't you bring your music games to the U.S.? We just wanted to make hardware, right? Because that was kind of our business at the time and high-end hardware for them. And universally, they told us, well, we don't think there's a market for music games in the U.S. Do you give any reason or kind of like... I think, you know, if you look back historically, 
they said outside of Dance Dance Revolution, music games just don't sell in the U.S., right? That's what the market data tells them. But I heard from, you know, uh, Mike Moritz, who's one of the top VCs in sort of Silicon Valley histories from Sequoia. You know, he said, thank God for marketing departments at big companies, right? Because they're going to go out and do market research and tell you, oh, nothing sells in this category. But startups are all about creating new markets, right? They're not about sort of following generally or expanding markets. They're about creating new markets. So we believed it. We didn't know how big it would get. But we decided, well, if they're not going to do music games in the U.S., then we had to do it ourselves, right? At that time, our business was dependent on them. If they didn't release music games, we couldn't make hardware for them, right? So the only way to sort of take control of our own destiny for our business was we had to get into the video game publishing business, which, you know, is crazy because at the time, video game publishers were consolidating. They were going away. It was becoming a game of scale. You needed a lot of money. But we were young. We had not been in the industry. We didn't know. So we we're like, okay, well, you know, let's give it a try. Did you think of it as kind of like a small risk kind of thing or a little side business or something? For us, it was a pretty big risk that we took in expanding into the publishing business. But we didn't go sort of all in as I would describe it. We knew that if it didn't work, we had enough revenue and we had enough business with the dance pads and the other accessories that we would survive. It would hurt a lot, but at least we would survive, right? So think of it more of like a calculated risk than just an all-in bed where, you know, it's go big or go home, right? That was not what we were thinking about at the time. So the first game that we actually published was a dance game because that helped us sell our own dance pads. And while we were working on that game, we decided, well, let's try a second game, a second project. We really wanted to make a music game that would fit for the Western market. And all the Japanese games were using J-pop. Right? So we thought, well, if we want to make a game that's going to sell in the Western market, we got to use Western music, right? Or music that appeals more to the Western audience. So for us... That was rock and roll. And, you know, we wanted to make accessories. So if you make an accessories-based game on rock and roll, then guitar was the natural sort of instrument for us. And that's really how we came upon or even stumbled into, you know, the Guitar Hero game in that market. Were you rock and roll fans growing up? I was a rock and roll fan, but that it wasn't because I was a huge rock and roll fan that we decided to do a <laughs> rock and roll-based game. Did you think about any other instruments or like kind of like a violin one or like a keyboard? Yeah, over time we did. The second game that we introduced, this was about two years after Guitar Hero, actually three years into Guitar Hero, was a DJ game. So DJ Hero was the name of the game. We actually prototyped a keyboard game, like a piano game, which is actually super fun, but it never made it to market. And we actually also prototyped a karaoke game. <laughs> and the karaoke game was fun because we took audio technology that made your voices sound better. So I think in like in the West, like US and Europe, not as familiar with singing and karaoke. And so people are more afraid to sing. So we thought, hey, if we can use technology that makes everybody sound great, then people, you know, would want to sing more. It's like an auto-tune. Very similar. But technology that was based on what actually real, surprisingly, what real musicians actually use. Even like, a you know, Celine Dion was using that type of technology to enhance her voice while she's on stage. <laughs> <laughs> when did you realize that like this Guitar Hero product was starting to really take off? Like, was there kind of like a turning point? 
Yeah, you know, there were a lot of different sort of little hints, especially at the beginning. And like most startups, we almost ran out of money three times. You know, startups are always a very difficult road, right? And the third time was just before we launched Guitar Hero. My brother and I, you know, mortgaged our houses and then took a loan from a family friend, you know, just to get this thing launched. But pretty early on, right when we launched it, because there was music sort of playing fairly loud, Every time the game was being played, people would be like, oh, what's that? They would look, right? They would pay attention. They would want to know, oh, what are you playing, right? And so that was a very early sign. The next sort of big sign in the early days was that we had heard that somebody at Sony, we'd only released it on the Sony platform because that's all the money that we had. We didn't have enough money to release on Xbox or, <laughs> or Nintendo at the time. So we only released on the Sony platform. And we'd heard that somebody at Sony had booked a conference room and set up Guitar Hero for the entire day. And people were just going in and playing the game, which was pretty fun to hear. And then we also heard that they were playing the game up at Nintendo, which, again, we didn't make the game for the Nintendo platform. We only <laughs> made it for Sony. So they were bringing the Sony PlayStations at <laughs> Nintendo headquarters and playing Guitar Hero there. And so those early signs were like, you know, this is pretty interesting. After we released Guitar Hero 1, you know, we were still a small company at the time when we first released it. We were doing about $6 million in revenue, but about $2 million in profits because our dance pads had such high margin at the time. Every month, you know, sales would go up. And it was only really limited by how much capital we had because we had never raised VC money, just, you know, friends and family money at the beginning. And every month the sales went up and a lot of it was limited also by how much hardware we could produce. Console games, especially disc or digital downloads, right? You get that right immediately. There's no lead time. But because we had to make physically manufacture these guitars and we did them in China, you know, we had to place our orders in three months early. And so we were afraid to put in too big an order and then all of a sudden realized three months later that the market had slowed down. So every month sales went up for with Guitar Hero 1. We sold the most number of units of Guitar Hero 1 10 months after we released the game, which is very unusual for video games, right? Usually video games come out, especially console games, and half your sales are in the first month. And then another fourth of your sales are in the second month, right? And then it's kind of a tail after that. But ours was a game where it you know, just kept going up. And, you know, when we saw that, that was really interesting for us. And we had no idea how big it would become, right, of course. But for the first four to five versions of Guitar Hero, it was literally just trying to catch a tiger by the tail. The first year after we launched, we did 50 million in sales. So we grew from 10 million as a company to 50 million in sales. The second year, we did 300 million. The third year, we did a billion and then by the fourth year, we did a billion six. So, you know, it was just a crazy, sort of crazy ride. Learned a lot and, you know, a lot of fun along the way. What were some of the challenges you learned scaling up a business like that that's kind of going on hyperspeed? There were so many things sort of happening at once, right? Everything from production of the game, you know, sort of where I'll start. By the second, third version of the game, excuse me, we were acquired by Activision and one of the philosophies that Activision had was that they believed in what they call sim ship or simultaneous shipping. So they want to ship everything as close to the same day as possible because that's how you maximize your marketing dollars. If I'm going to spend money marketing, I want it to be available on as many platforms as I can. Because if it's not available on every platform, I'm sort of wasting my marketing dollars. So Activision, they call this uh, sim ship, simultaneous ship. 
So I mean, ship across all the consoles, right? That's right. And not only across all the consoles, but also across regions. So we were shipping in three regions, North America, Europe, and Asia. We were shipping software that was localized for every region. We were shipping hardware that was localized for every region, right? Every region had their own specific test requirements and licenses that we had to get and pass. We were working off of one-year development cycles, which is also very unusual for a game, right? A AAA title nowadays can be working off of two to three-year development cycles. And if you're like a Grand Theft Auto, which is one of the biggest console games, you know, they might be working on a five-year development cycle, right? So we were working off of one-year development cycles, trying to same day ship to three different regions with hardware and software and having all of that manufactured and software developed. So we had seven software development teams working on different versions of the game. Obviously, the factory's cranking out as much you know hardware as we can. And just trying to coordinate the logistics, all of that was a huge sort of thing that I learned along the way, right? And that ability to maximize your revenue, the CEO of Activision at the time, Bobby Kotick, still is the CEO. His philosophy, and it's absolutely correct, is you'll make a lot more money selling 2 million units of one game than 1 million units of two games, right? Because you'll have scale. And again, that was another thing, you know, that I learned through that process. So it was all about maximizing, you know, the game and maximizing the marketing dollars that we were putting behind it every single year and doing that in different countries where everything was localized. It was tough, but it was a great learning experience for me. And then how did you kind of move from kind of this really exciting experience from Guitar Heroes to your current position or what you're doing now at 886 Studios? Yeah, so 886 Studios was a venture studio or is a venture studio that um, I helped start in Taiwan. A big component of that was one, myself and a bunch of my friends from Silicon Valley. We were all here during COVID, what we call COVID refugees, right? Hiding out from COVID in, in America. So... For me personally, and like most of my friends, what was supposed to be like a two or three month summer vacation at the time turned out to be living here for a year or longer. One of the things all of us, um, there are 12 partners in 886 Studios. One of the things about us is that we're all founders. We've all exited companies and all exited in the U.S. And so for us, a lot of it was we're here in Taiwan. You know, we see the startup ecosystem here. We see that, you know, there's a lot of tech and a lot of smart people. How can we help the Taiwan startup ecosystem here? Because that's kind of our backgrounds. We're tech founders and startup founders. So we started 886 Studios as a venture studio to really bring founders together, put some ideas and I like to think of it as an incubator. I like to also think of it at 886 Studios as we're a startup that creates other startups, right? So we bring in super smart founders. We work with them. We try to workshop ideas. If they're good ideas, we try to build an MVP and eventually spin those companies out into their own startup, incubated within 886 Studios. How do you come across these kind of founders or these potential founders, these potential entrepreneurs, I suppose? A lot of it is just, you know, meeting them through the startup ecosystem and through the startup network here in Taiwan. You know, some of them have heard about 886 Studios, so they'll approach us. A lot of them are just people that we know or we met through the network that are interested in working on a startup themselves. So they kind of come from a lot of different places. That's how we meet them. 
kind of from your vantage point, how would you describe or kind of how would you explain the Taiwan startup ecosystem right now? Like what are some of the certain aspects that make it unique? You know, for me personally, I've been sort of trying to understand the Taiwan startup ecosystem for, you know, fairly long time, you know, almost 15 years. And the great thing is, I think it's come a long way from, you know, when I first started trying to understand it. I was born in Taiwan, but I lived or grew up in the U.S. You know, we'd come back at least once a year, usually, you know, once a year on average. And every time I come back, part of it was, hey, let's meet some startup founders and investors and kind of see what's going on. One is I think there's a lot of great talent here, especially technical talent. It's relatively inexpensive compared to like the U.S. market, which is great if you want to start a company and, you know, startups are always like on a shoestring budget, right? So the more runway you have, you know, the easier it is to get your company going, to get your startup going. So we saw, you know, those aspects of it which are great, and the ability to actually have enough talent here, the talent pool is big enough to create new startups here, right? to build a decent-sized ecosystem. What we also saw was that a lot of the startups here did not have the global experience as founders, right? They're first-time founders, right? So they haven't had you know, a more global experience in creating these companies. And all of the 886 partners did. So that was what we felt like one of the things we could really help the Taiwan startup ecosystem was, hey, you're super smart. You know, we have experience. We can help bring some of that experience when they're building their startups. And in fact, with 886 Studios, one of the most important things working with these founders is that we actually don't want them to start business in the Taiwan market. Let's start in the West or Southeast Asia. Most of us have more experience in North America and Europe as 886 partners, but open as long as we start in a big market. The reason is because, in my experience, it doesn't matter how big or small the market is, there's overhead in getting things set up, right? It could be the Taiwan market, it could be U.S., it could be Japan, you know, whatever the market is, right? It could be a big market, it can be a small market, but you still have to build an operations team, depending on what you're doing. You still have to build marketing. You still have a lot of basic infrastructure that you need to put in place. And no market is easy. So as a philosophy with 886 is that if you're going to spend that time building the infrastructure, you might as well go to a market that can scale a lot bigger. If you start in a market that isn't able to scale as big, you spent all this time building up this infrastructure And then you have to move to another market, maybe that's bigger, right? And so let's just start somewhere where the market sizes potentially are bigger and more scalable. So you see that as like one of the bigger challenges that Taiwanese entrepreneurs have to deal with. Like they lack that sort of global perspective or they lack that understanding of kind of like a market that's not Taiwan, right? Yeah, you know, I would describe it more as experience, right? You know, first-time founders, it's difficult to have that experience. And so how do we infuse at wherever we can that experience into, you know, the Taiwan ecosystem is what we're trying to do. And how kind of the methods is 886 trying to perform that goal, like mentoring or is it kind of like classes? How does that kind of look like? Yeah, a lot of it is mentoring. A lot of it is working with the startup founders 
to where we can to try to help them understand what the markets are like outside of Taiwan. What are the things that they should focus on and try to prioritize? And sort of how can we help them raise money outside of Taiwan? Because that's another thing that it's natural if you don't have a network outside of Taiwan, it's hard to break in and figure out who the investors are and who you can talk to, especially early stage investors. Once you're sort of mid to late stage investors, you can find them pretty easily. But finding angel investors, finding early stage investors, finding seed stage or series A investors is always going to be more of a challenge. And so those are the things that we try to help them with. How would you describe like the Taiwan venture capital, the VC investor ecosystem? In my experience with the VC ecosystem in Taiwan is it's still pretty early. There's a lot of money here in Taiwan, which is great. But in sort of my experience, a lot of it is concentrated into corporations or family offices, big conglomerates or families that right, have done traditional businesses and you know have made a lot of money over time. Whereas your more mature markets are what we'll call or what I'll call professional investors. They're a class where that's like their job, right? They're professional investors. And so they're constantly out looking for startups and new deals versus maybe waiting for deals to come toward them a little bit more, right? There's also a lot more specialization in investor ecosystems, meaning you're not investing generally across as a VC. If I have a fund, they're not investing across like three or four different categories. They're literally like it's a very specific category that they're investing in. And so Taiwan is not quite there yet, but I think I'm seeing, you know, more investors here, which is great. And that helps the startup founders, of course, right, who are looking for investment capital. What are these guys with all these big old families with all this money? Like, what are they doing with their money? Is it just sitting in a bank or somewhere? Like, like what are they doing with it? I'm sure there's a lot sitting in the bank somewhere, <laughs> right? I think, you know, they're also very smart and they're out looking for different types of investments, right? But generally speaking, there isn't as much of an emphasis on, again, one specific industry category or even within an industry, certain verticals within that industry. So you'll see that the investments tend to be spread across a few different categories. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but if you're a VC who's investing specifically across a vertical in 12 different startups or 12 different companies, your ability to help them is easier, right? Because they're doing similar things. You can help refer them to different people. In fact, you refer them to each other, right? Which is a lot of what, you know, VCs do is they refer their own startups to their own other startups, which help each other. So I think that's one of the differences that I've seen in Taiwan. What have been some of the interesting companies that you've been mentored, maybe yourself or 886 in general has kind of mentored in, in recent days? Like, kind of want to amp or highlight or talk about? Yeah, there's a couple really interesting startups that we're working with right now. And we're also looking at a new program called um, 886 Velocity, which I'll also talk about. One of the startups that we're working with right now, which is uh, from the 886 Studios, the Venture Studios side, is called Heyday. And they're focused on senior fitness more specifically, senior strength training. That's one of the big issues as people grow older, they're not doing strength training and fall prevention or falls, right, is a very big issue when you're a senior. The statistics are very grim if you fall and you break a hip, right? So doing strength training is very important to strengthen the bones as you get older. So think of this company, a heyday like Peloton, but it's a connected fitness device and it's specifically working with seniors, a device that's safe for them to use, 
with AI trainers or maybe making the exercise a little bit more fun. It's kind of really cool. Yeah, yeah. So that one's super cool. Um, the team is fantastic. Slightly over a year, they've gone from concept to physical hardware product, hardware and software already prototyped and getting close to being able to ship. So really great team. Another one that's really interesting is a startup called uh, Funway Esports, and their product is called Mahjong Masters. So the founder and CEO, he used to run Poker Stars for Asia. And the idea behind Mahjong Masters, the product, is how do you do for Mahjong what poker has done, right? Poker's kind of become a worldwide phenomenon, a lot of people playing poker. And there was a very specific way that they built the business of poker, right? There's live streaming so that you start to understand who the personalities are, tournaments, broadcast, so people get excited about not just playing, but also watching poker. A lot of that hasn't happened in a sort of more systematic way for Mahjong, but 80 million poker players around the world and 650 million Mahjong players around the world, right? So again, how do you do for Mahjong what, you know, poker has been able to do, you know, in that business? That's so, really cool. Yeah. That's so, actually really exciting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, really interesting one there as well. The other thing that we're kind of working on for this year, actually, this is a new program I mentioned a little bit earlier, 886 Velocity. One of the ways that we want to help the Taiwanese startups in addition to the venture studio that I mentioned, where we work with founders from the very, very beginning, early stages. With 886 Velocity, the goal is how can we help as many Taiwan startups get into top accelerators like a YC, a Y Combinator? So this program, we're just in the process of launching. The idea is we'll get super smart founders, and in this case, probably more teams than individual founders. It's a 12-week program that we put together, and the idea is to help them shape their story, shape the business model, find product market fit, and get them into a top accelerator. Again, like a YC. We sort of use YC as an easy way to kind of describe what that process is, is like, right? But obviously, there's a lot of great accelerators that are around both in the US and here in Taiwan. So, you know, the goal in success, right? If we could get five to 10 startups into YC, you know, every batch, right? I think that would be a really, really good win for the Taiwan ecosystem. And part of it is to create that flywheel right? So they get into YC, they'll have the experience for how do you create, you know, global scale startups. Hopefully there'll be a good number of them that exit. Then those founders and early employees will have enough equity and stock to be able to then start either a new company or start, you know, their first company and create that flywheel here in Taiwan, right? Which is what happened with Silicon Valley, you know, in the early days and a lot of startup ecosystems. So what do you see as some of kind of the big industry and market opportunities that Taiwanese startups can address? Like if there was like a founder, he's not quite sure what he wants to do. Like what would you kind of suggest him to look at right now? I'll take the easy road on on the first one. Uh, <laughs> anything to do with AI, right? <laughs> that's maybe cheating to answer that. But clearly that's been a big thing. And it's going to be a huge area. I sort of joke that when I say, you know, working in AI, right, this would be like the early days of the internet and saying, I work on the internet. Like, what does that even mean now by now, right? I work on the internet, but that's essentially what sort of AI will follow, right? The same path. Like you're not working on AI, you're working in industries. AI is just integrated into almost everything, every business that's going to happen, right? And so the opportunity for really long-term growth there, I think is pretty exciting, but also scary. 
I was just talking about it with uh, one of our 886 partners today that if you've been in software and you've kind of followed AI even a, a little bit, you know, there's a lot of people that have high hopes on it, but also people are worried about where it's going to go. I don't know that I can say where it's going to go, but the only thing I can say right now is that it's going to have a really, you know, long tail and it almost feels like you're driving a little too fast and we're not quite out of control, but it was like we could get out of control at any time, right? There's this feeling of like a little bit of risk of what's going to happen. There will be good actors and there will be bad actors and there's a lot of thing that's going to happen. You know, there will be massive disruption across many industries, including jobs, right? That's probably the thing that outside of the existential threat, right? Is like is robots and AI are they going to kill us at some point, right? The terminator scenario, there's just this, you know, this idea of we don't know exactly where it's going to go. Does feel a little bit dangerous, but there's just going to be so much that happens and I think within that disruption, you know, let's say job displacement, right? There will be new companies that form to help deal with some of those issues which will then become, you know, new companies that hopefully have an opportunity to grow big over time, right? So, it's hard to say where everything's going, but it's rare in my experience in the technology world to see everything move so fast. The last time I think I saw something move this fast was when um VR and AR first started and prior to that in my personal experience a lot of these new industries it was always startups that got in first. The big companies just sort of wait right because they have money and they'll just wait and buy up startups. And that's always been historically what's happened. When VR first hit That was the first time that I actually saw big companies all jump in. Facebook, Google, Alibaba, like pretty much, you know, Samsung, Microsoft, like every big company got into VR was working on something in VR. That was very different. I feel like AR has a similar sort of path in that it's not just the startups that are working on it right now from the beginning. It's like everybody's working on it now. Startups, big companies, everybody's, you know, sort of planting their flag. in here and so there's just going to be a tremendous amount of activity i think in the next sort of 3 to 5 years with anything that's related to you know ai or has some ai component to i do think that's something taiwan definitely needs to get involved in as mm-hmm. well and i think there's good software talent here right i think there is the ability to build an ai base here it's already started but i do think that you know if taiwan can at least try to get ahead of the curve a little bit or at least stay on the curve i think that would be great for the taiwan ecosystem Last question, really. Like, what kind of advantages do you think Taiwanese people and companies have here? Like, everyone talks about the silicon advantage, but like, is there any that come to mind that other than that? For sure, the silicon, right, and robotics and things that are sort of related more toward hardware. That's kind of historically been, a, you know, a real strength in Taiwan. I think there is a shift here, and I think the industry and even the government sort of knows that we need to start promoting software and the software sort of, I guess you call it industry more, right, and software development. And so we've seen a lot more of that in the last five to seven years, or I've seen a lot more of that, which is great. And it really shows when you know the bigger companies are coming here to Taiwan and setting up shop, like Google, Amazon, coming to set up shop here. The talent pool is highly educated. 
it's relatively inexpensive, again, compared to, you know, different parts of the world. And so I think you have the ability to hire people and then you have the ability to get them at a reasonable cost, which, you know, is critical for startups in the early days, right? Before they kind of figure out their product market fit. So there's a lot of twists and turns. So, you know, the more runway you have, the more likely you have a chance for success. Kai Huang, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us here. We really appreciate it. Again, thanks for having me on the show. It was a lot of fun. Baby.